Welcome to our podcast. We are beloved daughters of Christ, and this is At The Well. Welcome back, everyone, to the podcast at The Well. This is season two, episode 11. We have a very special episode for you. And as always, we have our three co-hosts, myself, Erica, Rachel, and Alec. And we wanted to introduce to you our very special guest. So with us today to talk about the Sacred Heart of Jesus is his eminence Cardinal Thomas Collins. He is the Cardinal of the Archdiocese of Toronto, which is the archdiocese that we are all rooted in. But to tell you a little bit more about him, born and raised in Guelph, Ontario, he is the only son and youngest of three siblings. His childhood home was situated behind the Church of Our Lady, where he attended and served morning mass. Cardinal Collins considered being a teacher or a lawyer, but he was profoundly inspired by his grade 11 English teacher to consider the priesthood, which he did. And after obtaining two degrees, he was ordained to the priesthood in the Cathedral of Christ the King in Hamilton. He proceeded to study in Rome for his doctoral work, which centered around the Book of Revelation. So he's a very interesting person to talk about that theme. And shortly after this, in 1997, he was appointed as the Bishop of St. Paul, Alberta. Two years later, he was named the Archbishop of Edmonton. And uh, in December 2006, he was appointed as the Archbishop of Toronto. And most recently, in 2012, the Holy Father, Pope Benedict XVI, announced the appointment of Cardinal Collins to the College of Cardinals. And he's been serving as the Cardinal for our Archdiocese of Toronto ever since that. So we're very happy to have him, especially when it comes to this theme of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, which we just commemorated yesterday. I would like to invite Cardinal Collins to lead us in opening prayer. Okay, thank, thanks very much, Eric. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, we ask you to send the Spirit upon us, Heavenly Father, and help us to be faithful disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Mm-hmm. The sacred heart of Jesus, we place our trust. Amen. In the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you, Your Eminence, for that opening prayer. And we also wanted to take this moment to thank you um, for your authentic leadership during these unprecedented times. Um, We are so blessed in the Archdiocese of Toronto to have you as our shepherd and guiding this flock. And specifically, we wanted to thank you for your commitment to be present to the people every day. At the start of this pandemic, you made a promise that the cathedral would be live streaming daily mass to ensure that the faithful could participate, even if virtually in the celebration of Holy Mass. And we want you to know that it has been a source of hope and encouragement for many that have really been able to engage and participate daily and have this virtual access to the Holy Sacrament. So thank you. Through divine providence, uh, you have also been able to inform us through your daily homilies in a way that may not have been possible otherwise. (laughs) And so as you proclaim the gospel and teach us, you bear fruit that inspires us to learn more and grow deeper. And specifically, and most recently in April, you wrote a pastoral letter, Heart Speaks to Heart, that invited the lay faithful to dedicate the month of June focusing on the devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus and to make it a vital part of our life of faith. And here at the podcast at the well, as we were planning for this episode, 
your letter came out and all of us knew that we needed our listeners to hear directly from you how we need this devotion to sustain our faith in our world that truly needs it right now. And so being that it is our first episode in June, and as Erica mentioned, today is the Feast of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Yesterday was the Solemnity of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. We thought that this was the most opportune time for you to share this letter with us. And to just start off, I guess, Your Eminence, if you could please share with us your beautiful description from your letter of the symbol of the Sacred Heart and why it's so needed today. Well, it, it is a very important symbol in our life. Uh, it goes right back to the Bible, really. When uh, it briefly mentioned in the uh, the Gospel of John about the, the lance uh, you know, in the side of Christ. But it's been picked up from there down through the tradition. And it's taken different forms. It really got a development at the time of St. Francis de Sales and St. Jean, uh, Jean de Chantal, who founded the Visitation Sisters. And then a bit later, a few decades later, one of those Visitation Sisters, St. Margaret Mary Alico, had the vision of our Lord. And our Lord used, I think, the uh, as, as God often does, the imagery with which uh, St. Margaret Mary was familiar in her spiritual life from St. Francis de Sales and from the earlier tradition to communicate his will for her and for us. So the sacred heart, the basic image, you know, there are a lot of other elements, but the basic image is a heart, first of all. And um, that's the, um, the heart is a symbol of love. Now we use it in a secular way. We have like Valentine's hearts and things like that. But sometimes love can be merely emotional. Sometimes love can be very selfish. It's not really love, but it's a false love, you know. And sometimes the love can seem to be Christian compassion, just sentimentality. There's nothing about the truth. For example, people can justify immoral behavior, speaking of uh, saying that love wins and that love is what we want. Well, that's not love. It's uh, something different. So the heart, though, is truly a symbol of love and what we mean in the, in our faith, because it's faithful. Our hearts, uh, we don't even think about our hearts. If we think about our hearts, we're in trouble because our hearts doing something that's, not, that's unusual. We don't want our hearts to do something unusual. We want them to be boring and steady and regular so we don't even know they're there. And a lot of the most important things in life are like that. We often go for the more spectacular things, but if my heart is getting spectacular, I'm having a heart attack. So we don't want that. We want it to be steady. And that's the way love should be. Love that Christ calls us to is steady love, faithful love. It's what we see in the Old Testament where the people's hearts were very fickle, but the love of God was always faithful, faithful, always there. And so there's a the imagery of the Sacred Heart actually goes way, way, way back to the, the very earliest days. And so it's faithful. And our heart is something that is essential for our life. And that's why the heart represents the whole person. And so God says you must, and Jesus picks it up in the first of the two commandments, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. It's yourself. You can't just be a little bit. And in our Christian faith, the heart of Christ is everything for us. It's not just a, a little thing. And so our love, which we then show to others, we try to show the sacred heart of Jesus to the people we meet day by day, which is the second commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the love of God for us and our love of God totally with all our heart and mind and soul is shown then with others. So the heart, there's many other dimensions of the heart, but the, the key thing is that it is faithful and it is essential. 
It is steady. It is reliable. And I think we know in our life of relationships with other people, when we have a friendship with anybody, when we're in love with anybody, when in our families or whatever, what we really look to is that steadiness, that faithfulness. It's really needed, especially in this world. We're made for relationship that are like those of, the, of God, really. And that's what the sacred heart. The sacred heart, though, also the imagery is wounded. That comes from uh, the Gospel of John, the lance going into the side of Christ. That comes from the Gospel of John with Thomas wanting to place his hand in the side of Christ. It is wounded. That's something that goes to the book of Revelation, if I can refer back to what I did all my studies on. When St. John has a vision of the, the glory of the heavenly court, of like of heaven, the only really good description of heaven we have, you see the Lamb, which is Christ, the Lamb of God. The Lamb, right in front of the throne of the Heavenly Father, but slain. So the wounds of Christ are there. And the same we know when Jesus revealed, uh, came after the resurrection to his apostles, he, he was remarkably transformed, obviously. We don't know quite what it's like, but it, whatever it was, it was astonishing. But one thing we do know is that his wounds, the wounds of Christ are on the risen body because Thomas reached out for them. So our love like, has to be like the love of Christ who suffered for us. St. Paul says in chapter 2 of Philippians, verses 6 to 11, he did not cling to his equality with God, but emptied himself, taking uh, our life even to death, death on a cross. So the love we show for others can't be a kind of a theoretical thing. Uh, it's going to be have to be real, and if it's real, we can get wounded. If we we can suffer, we're we're like Christ. Uh, the the love of Christ is nitty gritty, human, divine. It's but it's definitely not theoretical. It's it involves, and sometimes we think of the wounds of love. Uh, we think of the seven sorrows of our of our blessed mother. Uh, you know that the sword will pierce your heart. We think of Saint Monica. When she, her heart was breaking over her son, Augustine, uh, who had left the church. And uh, she was crying. And Bishop Ambrose said to her, fear not, the child of those tears will never perish. And uh, I often think when I hear confessions that often parents come and they're just, uh, we're talking with, they're distraught because they tried to raise their child uh, with love and care as a Catholic. And now the child has left the faith or is, doesn't go to church or whatever. It's a terrible, it's a sword that pierces the heart of many mothers and fathers. And so the sacred heart pierced by the wounds of sorrow is very real. This isn't sort of lips only. That's sort of what uh, the, the term heart speaks to heart comes from St. Francis de Sales who emphasized very much the sign of the Sacred Heart. He was giving advice to a preacher. And the preacher was a young archbishop who asked him, what do I do to preach? So he wrote him a letter, which is about the length of a booklet. But one of the things he says is, when you're preaching, the lips speak to the ears, but heart speaks to heart. Cor ad cor loquitur. And I think that's the truth. If we're going to evangelize this world as well, it can't be a theoretical thing. Our love for others has got to be real. And like, what does it look like? It's nitty gritty. It's dirty. It's, uh, it's what our Lord showed when he was washing the dirty feet of the apostles. It's the kind of stuff we see with Mother Teresa on the streets. You know, an hour of adoration before the Lord and the rest of the time on the streets helping people. So the crown of thorns is there and the wound in the steadiness of the heart. 
Then there's a cross above the symbol of the heart. And that cross means that we're going back to John chapter 24. We go back to the, the lance piercing the side of Christ. It is the love of Christ on the cross we're talking about. Uh, that's the symbol of our faith. When people are struggling, people are suffering, it's the cross of Christ. That's the love that heals. That's the love that brings peace. St. Augustine, who was going in a lot of strange ways in his life uh, before his conversion, uh, at the beginning of the first page of his confession says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, but our hearts are restless till they rest in you. And they rest in Christ, in the cross of Christ. That's why I'm very sad when I see people without any real understanding of our Christian faith, maybe it's become so shallow, so thin, maybe it's evaporated, that they seek other symbols for love. And their symbols, uh, they might look brightly colored, they might look uh, attractive, uh, you know, fluttering in the wind, but there's not, they won't bring the peace that comes from the cross of Christ. They just don't, they, they're, they're artificial, they're abstract. They're not really leading to the peace, which often we all suffer, and sometimes people suffer greatly. And we must not offer them a stone. We must offer them bread, the bread of life. And we must offer them the cross of Christ, in which alone we find salvation. There's so many substitutes which are just not it. So that's one of the reasons, I think, since sometimes the month of June is uh, dedicated to solutions to real problems, but which are not really life-giving. And so I think we should remember that the Catholic Church has always celebrated the month of June as the month of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. That's because this it follows after Pentecost, which is usually in June. So it works that way. But that's important. And then around it all, there is the flame, the fire. Uh, that's very common in, in the image of the Sacred Heart. And our love must be burning with real zeal. Not the zeal. Sometimes Catholics have zeal to say, you're going to go to hell. Well, that's not going to bring anyone to the heart of Christ. You know, really, you don't want someone with the, the, the gospel like a, a sledgehammer. No, that's not the fire we want. In fact, in the ordination, right, there's a line somewhere where one of the prayers, it says, make these newly ordained to be ardent but gentle servants of the word. So ardent means fiery but gentle with the fire of zeal and going there like, you know, but not uh, burning like, like uh, the, the dragon fire coming out of the mouth. You know, that's not the way. So we have fire. And there's a great story uh, in the early days of the church of the monks of the church, the old, old monks. And this young monk came and said, I've been doing all I can to serve. I do follow all the rules. I do all the things people say. I do this, I do that. I don't seem anything, I don't seem satisfied. What's what, what's wrong? And so the old monk, monk stretches out his hands and from his fingers, fire shoots out. And he says, you must become fire. So that fire is, it must consume us. Or the Lord says, with all your heart, all your mind and soul. There's also one other thing I might just end off in terms of the symbol. Sometimes the sacred heart just uses a symbol, but frequently it's seen within an image of our Lord. I just recently got a new one to have in my little chapel. And some of them, I must say, just purely artistically. I don't. I, I think some are better than others, but I won't get into that. I'm trying to use in our imagery to use good ones, good ones. Um, uh, not they're good, they're all good, but I mean just. But sometimes a statue, we have statues. We have one right down at the tomb of Michael Power. 
whose heart was so full of the love of the suffering Irish immigrants that he gave his life in this building here on October the 1st, 1847. He gave his life serving the, the people with ty uh, the typhoid became the Irish immigrants in 1847. So he really knew, but right beside his tomb is a, a, a statue, one side statue of Our Lady, the other side is a statue of the Sacred Heart. And there Jesus is pointing to the Sacred Heart. Come to me, all you who labor and overburdened, and I will give you rest. Learn from me, you know, for I am gentle and humble of heart. That's the thing. But many statues of our of our Lord, it's a little different. We have the heart with all I described, the cross, the flames, the wound, thorns. But the arms of Christ are reaching out. And that's a very, very real. And that's welcoming, reaching out, the hands of Christ. And that's where the famous story comes of a statue like that. Like maybe, I don't know, half of them are one way, half the other. But for this reaching out, there was a statue like that in a little village in France in World War One, And during the bombing and shelling and everything, the hands got broken off. And so at the end of the war, there's still the statue remains, just the hands were gone. And so some of the parishioners said, let's get a new, get some artists who carve some new hands. But a wiser parishioner said, no, no, leave it as it is without any hands. Just put a sign at the bottom of it. You are his hands. And uh, that's the heart of the sacred heart of Jesus. That's what it's all about. So I thought it would be good in this time we're facing so much loneliness, so much, uh, oh, I don't know, so much pain and alienation, so much abstraction, people all getting caught up in stuff. I thought we really need to emphasize the real thing, real love. And that is symbolized most perfectly in the sacred heart of Jesus. So that's just, I mean, I think I wandered on a little bit, but that's a few of the things about the image of the sacred heart. That's so beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. It's very easy to like briefly look at the image of the Sacred Heart and be like, oh, it's a, a very simple image. Yet you drew upon all of these images that even represent such pain and suffering. Yet because of that, we have true hope and true peace. And what I also loved is you drew upon a whole bunch of scriptures. So we can see that the symbol of the Sacred Heart really draws back to the roots in the Bible and in scripture. So we're wondering actually if there's a particular moment in scripture, because there are so many, but is there a scriptural moment that most profoundly illustrates the sacred heart for you? What stands out to you the most? Well, there, there are different ones. I think the one line that is uh, the famous come to me in my meek and or gentle and humble of heart. That really is the attraction of our Lord and the Sacred Heart. Uh, I think, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do on the cross. Is that well, in a world of anger and hatred, which we have a lot of it these days. Oh, my. Just look at the Internet. Look at this. Uh, comments people do. Holy man. It's amazing. So uh, people are, are throwing acid at one another. And they're throwing sort of acid at the Lord in terms of language and shouting and everything. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what to do. That's, they don't do what they're doing there. That's the sacred heart. But there's one line of scripture, which is not directly, doesn't use the word heart, but it's very closely connected to the sacred heart. In fact, in 1956, Pope Pius XII wrote a, uh, an encyclical on the sacred heart. It's spectacular. There's another one written in 
1999 by Pope Leo XIII, who I think is in many ways one of the greatest popes we've ever had. And Leo XIII wrote a thing called Anum Sacrum, which is Holy Year, because they were going to have a Holy Year as it turned to 1900, you know, like we did in 2000. But he did a thing, and he dedicated, consecrated the whole world to the Sacred Heart. But in 1956, on the 100th anniversary of setting up the solemnity of the Sacred Heart for the whole world, Pius XII wrote a book, and it's called, uh, and it's called Horietus Aquas. It's, it's Latin for, you will draw waters joyfully from the wells of salvation. And it's from Isaiah chapter 12, uh, I think verse 3. Um, better check it out. But anyway, I think it's <laughs> verse 3. You will draw water joyfully from the wells of salvation. It's sung at the Easter Vigil. It's one of the refrains that is sung. You will draw water joyfully from the wells of salvation. I, mean, I don't know how to do it. But anyway. <laughs> uh, and, and so that is what I'm thinking of. We're going through a desert right now. It's a desert of loneliness, often caused by COVID and the pandemic and the restrictions where denied access to the oasis of a lot of things which we need we want to, we need to be together you know we can't live forever uh you know in two pixels or something there's something gotta be you know so we are going through a kind of a digital desert right now but long before the pandemic there is a kind of a digital desert in the way we all get locked up on our own little islands of autonomy you know like it's me myself and i the unholy trinity you know as a, as a lady once said if you get all wrapped up in yourself, you make a very small package. And we all tend to be, you know, my this, my that, my this. Uh, and so, and, and even the technology makes it like that. Like you think of, I just use the image of digital, where and, you know, digital clocks, you see the, the, like, the time and you see like it's, uh, I don't know, 9.15, then you see 9.16, 9.17 and so on. You see the, mo the moments all disconnected. In an analog clock, you have a hand, and what Mickey Mouse's hand is, or anyway, you have a hand. And if it's at, if it's a bit past 9.10, but not yet at 9.20, it's 9.15. You know, you see it kind of moving. And it is where it is, a relationship to where it's been and where it's going. That's kind of healthy. That's much more humane. I think people sometimes find, like I have these digital things because they're very useful. But I always, my, I have in my chapel, and I have also my living room, uh, a pendulum clock with a, an analog dial. I feel I I check to be sure it's correct by checking a digital watch. You know, to deal that you got an atomic whatever. But I'd rather see that, and that's I think an image of how we're made to relate to one another. And I think the scriptural passage, "You will draw water from the well joyfully from the wells of salvation." Uh, I think that's very much what we're talking about here. It's the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Is this relational love? And we're in a desert. We need water to, to live. Uh, and the desert is made up of all these little grains of sand, each one of them unconnected, just blowing around. And there's no life there. People chase after the grains of sand. They chase after the wind. And there's no, no life. You die. We need an oasis. We need, you will draw waters joyfully from the wells of salvation. And the life comes from living in the name of the blessed trinity with this relational love like we gotta have that when we're we're in little boxes separate from one another i think even this pandemic has some benefit has made us realize that's desperately bad that's you can't do that for long even school you know you say 
we've got to get back. The kids want to get back. They want to, you know, they all want to be in together. So I think in sense, good old Pope Pius XII, uh, even though the, the phrase in scripture has, doesn't refer to heart, he began very wisely, began his encyclical, beautiful one, on the sacred heart of Jesus with the words, you will draw water joyfully from the wells of salvation. And I think that's a big, big and important thing for us. I'm really glad you brought up the image of the clock because uh, that was just a really nice, nice way to look at that whole analogy. And I know when the three of us read the document, we were maybe mindfully looking around the clocks in our house thinking, do we have analog or digital clocks? And I wonder what the Cardinal has in his rectory. You know, I wonder if he only has one type of clock. So um, that was, it was a really nice way though of, oh, there it is. There he has a, he has an analog clock and digital. <laughs> it is indeed a great analogy. <laughs> Yes, it was really it was really good to see the independence of one moment in time as opposed to the interconnectedness of where we fall right in all of time. So that's helpful. And one other question we had just kind of going off of the really important themes in the document was that I noticed that the sacred heart in and of itself can sound like it's a very expressive, emotive symbol, right? Because to to lead with your heart seems like it's it's all feeling based and it's a grand gesture of emotion. But you draw in the document upon this very important theme of how the heart is only one of three important elements in a head, heart and hands balance. So we were just wondering if you could dwell on that a little bit more about how the heart and the head and the hands all work together. No, that's, that's I think, an important thing. And I, I've thought about that for years and I've spoken like when I, when, when people come to me with ideas about what to do in the church, I often think head, heart, and hands. This, this is, is it clearly thought out? Does it have this warmth, this life, this, you know, and is it practical? Is something going to happen? You know, sometimes you can talk and talk and be all from the neck up, you know, just the head, sometimes just from the heart, in which case nothing, it's, it's, it's dangerous. It's like, in a sense, the head, heart, and hands is sort of like the steering wheel, the engine, and the, the tires. Maybe it's not as... That is, a, you know, it's a bit more mechanical image. You know, it's no good having an engine that's really powerful if you run into a tree. You know, you got to have the steering, you got to have the mind, you got to have the clarity. And I think that's why head, heart, and hands is very important. The heart is, when we're talking about the sacred heart of Jesus, is very much related to objective reality. It's not just an emotional something. It's related to the fact that Jesus is Lord. We have doctrine here. We have the doctrine of the incarnation. Uh, we have something real. I remember uh, Flannery O'Connor, one of the great American writers, she was a very profound Catholic. And she was once at a cocktail party in somewhere in New York with a bunch of other writers. And one who had been sort of a fallen away Catholic said, oh, I always loved the Eucharist. Oh, it's so nice. What a wonderful feeling it gave me and all that. And it, she said, well, well, she said it kind of strongly, actually. I mean, you know, but she said, well, if that's all it is, if it's just to make you feel good, well, then do it. You know, that's he just didn't really care about it. It's not. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. She said. So this is really important because the Sacred Heart of Jesus speaks to us of the suffering, death, and resurrection of the Lord. It speaks to us of action, what He did for us, and what He does for us. It speaks to us of doctrine, of this is Jesus. This is the Lord. Jesus is Lord, and it speaks to us of the warmth of 
personal identity. Uh, there's a really good book by a guy called uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand called The Heart. And the first part is just this whole idea that affectivity has to be, subjective affectivity has to be in harmony with the truth, with the truth, with the objective reality out there. And then it's fruitful. If you have the truth, but no warmth and no personal self at the very heart engaged in it, it's no, it's no good, it's, it's icy and cold. And if you have the warmth and the personal commitment of heart to this, but without the truth, it becomes very dangerous. And I think we see this in many ways. And of course, if you have both of them and you don't do anything, well, what's the point? You say, Lord, Lord, you know? And so I think this is very important. We have some dangerous examples of when you have the heart gone mad, of the heart disconnected, and without a sense of, of truth. Because people say, my truth. Well, my truth, I mean, the moon is either there or not. You can't say it's, for me, it is, for you, it isn't. It's like, and the same with the Blessed Sacrament. Well, for you, it is the body and blood of Christ. For me, it's a piece of bread. Well, no, either it is or it isn't. That matters. That matters a lot. Mm-hmm. Or either, like Boldman says, like Jesus sort of lives on in the hearts and minds of his disciples. Well, no, Jesus is there. This is objective. Like as he says to Thomas, feel my, my heart, you know, feel my, my wounds. And so where it gets really dangerous Sentimentality, it's, it's in the whole thing, fake comp- compassion. Sentimentality is the heart unhinged, the heart disconnected from the head and the hands too, the head in action, but mostly the head, truth, disconnect from truth. It's simply a sentimental experience of someone's situation. And somebody comes up and like, I mean, again, example, you know, a little, little child comes up with a pistol and says, I want to play with the pistol. You say, oh, that's okay. Go and play with it. No, stop. Don't do it. It's crazy. You got to think it through, you know. Uh, you just sort of loving someone and bombing someone with affection. It's not the heart as it's meant to be. That's not the sacred heart of Jesus. The sacred heart of Jesus is connected to this is our Lord and our God. He's calling us to love the Lord. He's calling us to repent for the kingdom of God is near at hand. I mean, he's gone change your life, do something like it's not just, oh, it's so sweet. You know, that's okay for kitties. And I know two little kitties, my sisters, cats, Patrick and Mickey. I, I don't mind that kind of thing with them, but not with anyone else. You know, when you're dealing with real stuff, where this is a problem is a couple of problems here. But one, one aspect of this is, for example, in euthanasia, where you say, oh, but you're actually... You know, an emotion in the the Carter decision, the Supreme Court of Canada, the very crafty lawyers, they were really knew what they were doing. They went to two, two or three extreme cases, which are very rare of, of people suffering and just the heart, just, oh, my gosh, you know, and the judges, these were like highly educated judges. They said, oh, dear. And they changed. They struck down the law against euthanasia on the basis of the heart disconnected from the head. As, for example, statements like, thou shalt not kill. They just kind of put that on hold when they went for the individual situation before their eyes. And, and that meant a lot of people die. You know, the needle goes in because of a false compassion, which is actually just sentimentality. It's the same way, too. I can think of other situations. A person, uh, young people especially, feeling a lot of distress and struggle in their life, especially in their teenage years. But other times, too, all of everyone does throughout life. But it's really hard. You know, as you're getting older, it's better to be older. You know, in some ways, you've been through a lot of the storms. 
That's why I always like a white-haired pilot on an airplane figure. He may not have the may not have the, the reactions of a young one, but he's probably seen several storms. Um, but when you're going through life, you know, young kids especially, they face a lot of struggles, especially in teenage years. And if a young kid comes to someone they trust, let's say a teacher, for example, at school, and pours out their heart about, I'm feeling, I'm not sure about my sexuality, I'm not sure about my love, whether I'm loved, whether I'm worthy, I feel these emotions within me, I'm all this kind of stuff. Then the adult who rightly is there recognizing this, this young person is, is truly suffering in, in an immediate experience. To be compassionate, to be Christian, to what would Jesus do is not to say, well, just go with what you feel. Or here's a way, if you have some urges and things you, you feel you want to go, go for it. You know, that's not Jesus. Jesus leads us. The truth must guide the heart. It's the truth and together. You've got to be head, heart, and hands. So if you just go with the heart unhinged from the end from truth, and you you know, so you can find your heart by uh, you know, where your heart leads you by uh, living, uh, let's say, to doing things which are not in harmony with the, the law of God or who we're meant to be, you're not going to ultimately find peace or joy. It will be false. And a lot of people are being hurt in the name of a sugar heart of sentimentality, which they think comes from a sugar Jesus. And there's no sugar Jesus. That's, that's poison. It's poison. It comes from our society. It doesn't come from our Lord Jesus. He changes our hearts. You know, he makes us, he brings us, he calls us to repent. When we're facing something we want to do, uh, like a little kid playing with a pistol or something, he says, no, don't do that. <laughs> Use your... And so I really am troubled in our current age. A lot of Christians, even in positions of, of let's say, responsibility for vulnerable people, they say, this person is suffering. Well, they are. That's, that's true. Therefore, give them what these people, these people want to say. Go for it. Do it. Here you are. And they hand them stuff which is not really good. It's not in, harm, in harmony with the truth, with the gospel, with human nature, with all kinds of things. And they, therefore, out of a false compassion, which has nothing to do with Jesus, uh, a false Jesus of sugar with nothing to do with the real Jesus we meet in the Gospels. They offer a path of life to a person who really is suffering, and it leads over a cliff. And that's not helping. Then if someone comes, wherever that might be, and says, no, please don't do that. At the cross of Christ, there is a way. Augustine had these troubles. So many people have had it. He was suffering. He was struggling. He was confused. There is a way. Our hearts are restless till they rest in you. It, it doesn't come from going with the flow or with sort of doing things which are, are against the law of God. It comes from repentance, sacrifice, love, compassion, true support, all that. That person will be said, no, no, you don't understand. You're a, you're a hater. You're a bigot. You don't understand the suffering of the person. Well, hello, you know. So I think that's a very big problem we face in our society with euthanasia false solutions and also on other issues especially caring for the young people but many other issues it's a sort of a, a very thin imitation of christianity and a lot of people are suffering because of it and what we need to do is not just condemn it although i suppose 
maybe I say something like that, but not that so much. It's provide the alternative. What is the alternative? It's the sacred heart of Jesus. It's love that is solid, steady, based on the truth, based on the love of God and love of neighbor, based on repentance for our sins and, and turning away from temptations that lead us in bad directions. That's what the real way is for all of us at every age. Well, that's one of the reasons I thought it was important to write this letter. Thank you, Your Eminence. I think you've answered a lot of the questions that we also had coming up <laughs> with that one. But, you know, it was so needed for us to hear and for everyone else to hear as well. I think one of the main themes that we see in our relationships with our friends and families is that they believe that we should love them the way they are and accept everything. Really, Jesus's love is about transforming us. Yes. And and, and this conversion is extreme or intense conversion of our hearts to align with God's will. And through that is actually the freedom that they're seeking. Um, yes. Yeah. And so we really thank you for making that very clear in this letter. And as well, just kind of reminding us that who we are at the core of ourselves in the heart of our hearts is we are a son and daughter of Christ. And that's how we should start who we are as our identity to the rest of the world. So we do appreciate that. And you always talk about different books in your homilies as well as in the letter. If you can maybe share out of all the books that you recommended in this letter, if there's one for sure that you would say you need to, to really delve into in order to have a good, stronger understanding of what the sacred heart of Jesus is and the devotion itself, which one would you recommend for us? Oh my, that's, uh, I've got, I, I do have a little list at the back and um, I, I, they're, they're different in different ways. If you want a thorough, really, really well-written, uh, thorough background in the history of this devotion sacred art, the theological riches of it, um, I think Timothy O'Donnell's Heart of the Redeemer is, is the best. It's the fullest. It gives you all the information, you know, it gives you a lot. It goes through all the different encyclicals and stuff. It goes through the writings. It's just, it's a bit, uh, it's a rather long book, but it's really well done. So I say that would be the basic one to get more knowledge of the background to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. But if you want something which I found to be, I don't know what to put it this way. Um, I found it really moving. And that is, Dietrich von Hildebrand's The Heart. Um, it was, he was a very holy man, a very brilliant and holy and learned man. And he wrote this about the first part of it is called, it's just about divine and human affectivity. The fact we're not just living from the neck up, we have the truth, but we also have the affection, which is that, that inner self of which relational love. But it always has to be in harmony with the truth. The two of them go together and then show forth an action. So he talks about that in general. He talks about it in a lot of ways. And then what he does, the second part of the book is the Sacred Heart of Jesus. So what he does, he goes through the litany of the Sacred Heart. And he, after each invocation in the litany, of which apparently there are 33 for the 33 years of our Lord's life. But anyway, after each of these invocations, some of which seem a bit unusual, like a burning furnace of fire of love or something, you know, but it's 
that or desire the everlasting hills. Um, he gives a scriptural passage, usually a passage from the Gospels, which illustrates the dimension of the theme of the love of Christ, the sacred heart, which that invocation shows. Uh, and so I'm going to be starting, uh, you know, I think I, I'm going to be, I'm encouraging people this month, I'm encouraging everyone in June, but I think I would be very much to, to pray the litany of the sacred heart. That's why uh, at the daily mass this month, uh, I am uh, after the rosary, uh, I am praying uh, the, the litany of the sacred heart. And I encourage everyone to do the same. It's very rich, very rich, but a little unusual. It, it, it merits um, study a little bit of what each of the invocations means. Sort of like praying the divine office. Like I highly recommend to everyone pray at least some morning prayer, evening prayer, midday prayer, or whatever, night prayer. Uh, it's not just for priests and nuns. It's for everyone if they who wishes and done in common. I do it at the lecture in every month. We do it in public. But, and I remember once when I was a young priest many years ago, I, um, I was asked to give a retreat for priests. And I couldn't figure what I had barely been ordained. What would I be able to say to a bunch of old pastors who knew, who knew much more than I did? But, well, one thing I know a lot about is literature. And I know a lot about scripture. So that I might be able to serve these experienced uh, pastors by talking about the divine office and by the Psalms, how we pray the Psalms. So I've been giving retreats on the Psalms of the office ever since. Well, the, the litany of the Sacred Heart is sort of similar. In fact, I think that might be a way, that might be a thought for next year's Lecture Divina. Hmm, I had to work that one out. Hmm. Anyway, um, I, I just got an idea. That's, I mean, what am I going to do next year? But the Litany of the Sacred Heart is sort of similar. You have these, these invocations, uh, desire the eternal hills, have mercy on us, sacred heart, divine of heaven. And I wonder, what does that mean? Once you know what it means, it suddenly becomes amazing. And that Litany of the Sacred Heart is just stunning. And yet nobody's ever heard of it. You know, it's a, I say in this letter, or one of some thing I wrote, one of the great uh, hidden in plain sight is one of the great treasures of our life in Christ. And that is the devotion of the sacred heart of Jesus. So I think that book by von Hildebrand gives us that. But also the thing by, if you want a practical manual on how to do stuff, I would say James Kubicki's book, Heart and Fire. It's the sort of nitty gritty it gives you. And it also has the, the litany with all kinds of more scriptural references in it. Like, so I, I recommend that. So for the, the history, the theology, heavy duty, really good, but heavy and solid, I'd say Heart of the Redeemer by Timothy O'Connell. For a deep meditative reflection on it all, the heart by G.C. von Hildebrand. And for a how-to manual and how to do it, Kubicki, the heart and fire. Thank you. It's almost the head, heart, and hands just in those yeah, three places. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's very. That's very true. Yeah. <laughs> and the funny thing about I, I didn't realize is this thing by uh, by von Hildebrand. Oh my gosh, it's so beautiful and profound. You think he must have been writing it in some monastery garden with a little fountain in the distance and all that. No, he was writing it on the run from the Nazis. He was, he was very courageous and he headed over the border, um, not quite like in 
on every mountain. Da, 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 da. You know, we're the Trap family. The trouble is, people joke about, you know, you see them going over the hill. That hill, apparently, from Austria leads them into Germany, which is not the way they want to go. But anyway, <laughs> oops, a little detail there. Sorry. You know, Admiral von Trappers, we go the other way. But but what von Hildebrand was doing, he was uh, proclaiming the faith and, and he was criticizing the Nazis. And so the 1930s, he fled to Florence. So that time it was safe. It wasn't for very long. And he gave these talks, which became the heart, to a bunch of Catholics who were kind of living a bit underground, uh, in a, with, you know, the police marching outside the door. So it makes you realize this isn't just theoretical. Yeah, so I love those suggestions. And even I, I noticed at the end of the letter, you referenced a number of books. And for anyone that maybe hasn't read the letter yet, please do read it. Don't let this conversation be a substitute. Even though it's filled with golden nuggets here, I literally, on the document that I printed, I would put little brackets and I wrote golden beside it. And shortly after, I wrote more gold. <laughs> so definitely please do read it. We'll put the link to it on our website, on our posts on Facebook and Instagram. So please do go and uh, check that out if you haven't yet. But for anyone that maybe hasn't read the letter yet, or even any of these books, can you give us, as you did illustrate in the letter, just practicals of how we can like truly live this out and not only for the purpose of being witnesses, but just authentically being able to apply the head, heart, and hands that we can start like right now. Well, I, I think that the image of it, uh, reading the scripture is, for one thing, I would say is the start. I'm urging people now, because I'm realizing, dealing with certain situations in this diocese, that people are talking about Jesus, and they're saying things that he would, oh my gosh, oh, uh, and it's affecting uh, young people and everything. So what I'm re recommending to everyone is read the gospel like the real one, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 89 chapters, read it, get to know the Jesus we're talking about, not one that we create out of our own mind, made a meringue or something. And that Jesus usually just says, well, go for it. You know, I, you know, I love you. I, can't, I, you know, I love you. He always says, I love you. But what does love mean? It means just validating whatever you want to do. Whatever the whims and fancies of your heart may be, that's okay with me, says Jesus, and just go and do it. That kind of a thing is not our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a uh, it looks sort of plastic. It's kind of like uh, it's a sugar or something. It's it. This is not what Jesus says in the gospel, you know. So I would say the first thing I would say to do is read the gospel. And I often think of this guy uh, Anthony Bloom, who wrote a book called Beginning to Pray. And I remember he's an Orthodox uh, Russian sort of guy. But in his youth, as a teenager, he has sort of lost his faith. As a lot happens, happens a lot. He read the Gospel of Mark. It changed his life. Like the gospel, the Lord. I mean, we don't give our life for Christ if we have a very thin, uh, emotional, but not um, deep vision of Christ. So I recommend read the gospel. Uh, that's the way I have. No, I have to, I sometimes have different color gospel, but I frequently have a red gospel uh, because I think... Uh, I often say that the gospel should be read. So I, I recommend uh, you can have what kind of gospel you want. In fact, I even have a, one on my my phone. Uh, anyway, my, I had one on my BlackBerry, I have one on my iPhone, uh, or any other uh, uh, device that has a button on it that you need to charge. Um, and it has a little screen on it. You can read the gospel that way too. So one of my first recommendations is every day read a chapter. 
chapter of the gospel, keep on going. It read maybe a chapter of something else. It doesn't take long. I met a man, and I was on the, I go to these wine and cheese parties all the time. <laughs> so it's part of my my work. Um, but I, what sometimes it's actually fruitful. One thing has been very fruitful. This one guy, I was at a religious thing. He was Ukrainian Catholic. I don't I couldn't even recognize him if I saw him probably, but he said he reads half an hour. He reads the Bible. And uh, I said, well, what part of the Bible? How do you do it? He said, I just read. You know? So I've been trying to do that. And so I would say, if you want to get to know the sacred heart of Jesus, you need to know Jesus, whose sacred heart we're talking about. And that puts head, heart, and hands together. Because he says, don't say, Lord, Lord, only, if you're not actually doing something. He says, he goes to the woman who is you know, being stoned by everyone, and he says, is no one to accuse you? I do not either. Who am I to judge? You know, But he also says, do not sin again. He's Jesus who's on the road to Emmaus with the disciples. They don't recognize him. He's walked with them. We should walk with other people. He speaks of the scriptures to them. We need to do that. And he explains them in the light of Christ. And then they recognize him in the breaking of the bread. He's connected to the Eucharist. There is an extremely strong connection between the Eucharist, especially Eucharistic adoration and the Sacred Heart. Margaret Mary wrote her, her reflections and had her mystical experiences of the apparition of our Lord in the Sacred Heart in, in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament. And the way it's set up now, uh, the feast of the Solemnity of the Sacred Heart of Jesus is the week after the Solemnity of Corpus Christi. Uh, and the whole idea, part of the, the messages of Margaret Mary that our Lord has there is to make a holy hour. And this is the thing Bishop Sheen picked up. And he recommends to priests or anyone who's close to a church in these days. You know, that's why at least we have the churches open. Uh, you know, we need to. So people spend time in adoration. Uh, and so I always recommend to priests who are always near a church, spend one hour of adoration before our Lord, the Blessed Sacrament. And in that time, meditate upon head, heart, and hands. How can I do that? And do it in our own homes. Have put a crucifix on the wall. I mean, if we're not near a church, put a crucifix or an icon on the wall. Sit down in a quiet place. We have a place for the television. We have a place for the computer. We have a place for the microwave. We have a place for everything. Do we have a place where we can just sit down and, and be in touch with the sacred heart of Jesus? Then show it. Uh, I think if we do that, we will be transformed. And we will then be able to show it to other people. Uh, that's the key, I think. Thank you, Your Eminence. That is so helpful to just realize that that plain but basic observation that we we won't know the Jesus of the Gospels until we read the Gospels. And I think that was so closely related to what you said is that then if we don't read the Jesus of the Gospels, we're forced to come up with other versions of Jesus, right? The what would Jesus do or the sugary Jesus and, and kind of just infer what he would do instead of, the, instead of study this. So that's a really, really good points that you drew out. And maybe just as a closing set of thoughts, we are called the podcast at the well, as you know, and our podcast name is inspired by the women at the well. Something that we always try to do is to relate all of our themes and topics and episodes implicitly or explicitly to the women at the well. And I think you've actually given us a wealth of knowledge about the ways these stories interrelate through your documents. So you mentioned 
the ego and isolation that are found when we're in the desert. And in some ways, Jesus encounters this woman in the desert uh, who is isolated as a Samaritan from the rest of the society. She's outcasted and she's going here, I guess, needlessly day after day to find the water that doesn't ultimately satisfy, right? Uh, and he offers her living water. So those were all really brilliant themes that you just drew out naturally, which is great. But did you have any final links that come to mind when you think about how the sacred heart of Jesus relates to the woman at the well? Well, she was seeking to draw water joyfully from the well of salvation. She thought it was down with a bucket, but actually it wasn't. <laughs> it was Christ himself, you know. So in fact, it is an exact uh, parallel or connection to the verse from Isaiah that Pope Pius used in his great encyclical on the Sacred Heart, that uh, the, the water, and she was there in the middle of the day because she, did, she was afraid to meet other people. Uh, she was very rejected. She was a very rejected person. And a lot of people feel very rejected. And they feel very like they're starving and they're thirsty. And they need, what they need is not an affirmation of what is making them die of thirst, that doesn't help. What they need is the water of salvation. And that's found in Christ. She found this in Christ. She wasn't expecting it. But that's where we need to find. And, uh, you know, our hearts are us until they rest in Christ. And so I think we just don't have the luxury, if we ever did, of superficial, shallow Christianity, which sad to say, I'm afraid, is sort of a... I didn't realize quite so much how much it is that a lot of the structures of the Catholic Church, forming people and everything, are uh, something has dropped out. And that is the real thing. You know, it's, a, it's like lacking in life. So what we need to do is this simple, not rocket science. We just need to go deeper and deeper into an awareness of Christ. That's why what, I'm, what I try to do when I face things where people are doing things, which I just say, what are you thinking? Why are you chasing after uh, vanity of vanities and thinking you're, you're leading people to a good solution? Um, what I always just try to say is don't go back to Christ and fill the box with salt and there'll be no room for the pepper. So that's what I try to do. Instead of just saying, why are you doing that? You know, I, I may say that a little bit. Are you sure you really want to do that? I mean, really? I, I, I really? Uh, what are you doing? But I don't want to say that too much because what I'd rather say is, here is the water of life. Come, come, come to the water. Drink joyfully from the wells of salvation. This way. And that's what I, I'm trying to do. And I think sometimes people wish bishops would use the sledgehammer more than the invitation, but you have to do a little bit of both, maybe the crozier, you know, boom. But I think uh, as Saint uh, Francis de Sales for bishops said, you know, you use, you use that love and that'll bring people to Christ. Thank you. And as we wrap up our show, what we usually close off with at the end of our episode, which is what we refer to as a God incident, your eminence and this moment is is really a moment in which God has been calling us uh, to grow in a specific area of our spiritual life. And so just to give you a quick example, I'll start it off this episode. And for myself, it's been a, a tumultuous 
last two weeks, I guess, from our last recording, uh, personally, you know, we do live in the stormy seas of life. And so <laughs> things have been coming at me and I've noticed, you know, things are trying to throw me off balance a little bit. And your letter actually has been a very good way uh, to remind me of the constant and consistent devotion and daily prayer and spiritual life that we need to implement in our own lives to focus on the Lord and make time for him has really been where I've been noticing in my life. God is asking me to grow and just really put the priorities in place. So Erica, what about you? How has it been for you this past couple of weeks? Thanks for sharing that, Rach. I think for me, um, just as a little simple reflection, my God incident came through, well, because I work in campus ministry with Alex. So talking to a, talking to a student helped me to realize this simple reminder about what it is to be present. So we were just chatting about how sometimes with our family members, who we find ourselves around more during the, during the lockdown, I can find myself being just in the same room but distracted right so like on my phone or not really being attentive to their needs but it's equally important just as much as we have our work day and all these other things to get through to find ways to actually be in each other's presence and be present uh, to the needs that others have so I think this was just a good reminder for me and it, it definitely made me look at my own life and think am I doing that with my husband or with the, the family members or friends that I find myself interacting with that week. So that was mine. And uh, what about you, Alex? Actually, I'd like to ask your eminence, do you have one you'd like to share with us before I talk about mine? Okay, well, I don't usually think along these lines, but I, uh, yeah, no, I, I look back the last little while. I am getting the sort of the higher, I get in the hierarchy, the more I see the wacky and strange things going on in the church. And sometimes very disturbing things. So that can make you a little angry, uh, can make you just a bit discouraged and wondering what is going on. I think of some of the stuff across the ocean, uh, some of the stuff you see, uh, you hear these scandals in the Vatican, you hear uh, you have things in other countries where they're going right off the cliff, you know. Hey, look closer at home and say, oh my gosh, what are they thinking? And, and then you see, you know, and I think uh, you look around and the good and faithful Catholics you know, taking out the guns and you know, like, uh, you know, ah, and it's just like screaming. I, I say, I appreciate what you feel, but I mean, is this the way to go? So you think, oh my gosh. And so in the midst of all that, I've been sort of aware of that. It does, I think, it has a fruitful moment. I think God is speaking in that, uh, even though the things that cause it are not very good, actually. Um, a kind of a shallow Christianity doing, leading to decisions which are just so destructive and yet appear so kind, you know, but they're so, they're wrong uh, and they're hurting people and then people getting angry. Um, and what's the way out of this? What is the way out? And I think that's where I have to sort of say, well, Lord, you know, we got to put it in your hands. That's why you got to go deeper, 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 deeper. Because I don't have the solution to these things. I often get letters from people saying, fix it. <laughs> okay, fix it. Um, you know, you can do it, fix it. Uh, you're no good as a bishop unless you fix it. And I tell, I try to do what I can. I've been working on it. But you realize the complexity of these things. 
and you've got to work at it faithfully. So what I just have to say at the end of the day is, and throughout the day, you know, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Make a holy hour every day. Try to be in the presence of God. And try to not have my agenda and my solutions uh, always uh, sort of central. I try to say, Lord, what do you want us to do? And how can I be faithful? Mm -hmm. And um, when there's there are problems that I don't know what we're going to do. You know, we're really facing this the attack of the spirit of the age. It's a deadly hurricane. It's a tornado. It's, it's got nothing. It's based on awful stuff. And yet people are just, uh, I mean, I'm just yearning for someone like the, well, I think of like that story of Hans Christian Andersen where the emperor goes out with all this, no, not worry, nothing actually, but the, he's convinced himself he's got a beautiful set of clothing and everyone says, oh, good. And the little child says, the emperor has no clothes. I'm just waiting for the moment when people, will, some will say, you've got to be kidding. But that hasn't happened yet about some of the wackiness of our age, which is destructive. So I just got to say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy and be a sinner and try to be faithful every day. That's about it. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Uh, my God incident, it's going to be revealing something I've been hiding for a while with the podcast. We're still in the month of May right now uh, when we're recording this. And my announcement is I just celebrated my first Mother's Day. Yeah, I, I have a baby girl grown inside of me who is now six and a half, close to seven months. Oh, uh, <laughs> that's very exciting. Um, so it was my first Mother's Day and just, of course, reflecting on the sacred heart of Jesus and, and just being able to just speak to her. What a blessing that before you were formed, he knew you and he knows all the hairs on your head right now. And I can communicate with her by talking and, and feeling her awesome little movements, which is amazing. But just celebrating that this first Mother's Day and being able to feel the love of the Lord through so many people that are celebrating with us from a distance, of course, because of COVID, but being so grateful um, and appreciative of that. Um, I definitely always feel the Lord's love every day, especially with all of our little kicks or, or punches or headbutts. So, um, so yeah, that, that would be my God incident. And your Eminence, we are so grateful, not only for, as Rachel mentioned at the beginning, of you being our shepherd um, and such a good shepherd of your time, talents, and treasure, but especially for taking your time to share these things with us in, in this episode and for all of the listeners here today. And so we always end off with a prayer. If you could lead us in the Hail Mary and also offer us a final blessing and blessing to all of our listeners. Okay. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. The Almighty God bless you and remain with you always, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless. Thank you so much, Your Eminence. And we really encourage everyone to download this letter from the archtoronto.org website read it, and really do spend time in June with you and your families and friends focusing on this beautiful sacred heart of Jesus that is just true love encountered. So thank you, and God bless everyone. Thank you. God bless. <laughs>